Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. Today, our guest is Jared Murphy of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us, Discovering Our Lost History. Uh, welcome to Everything Imaginable podcast, Jared. How are you today? Great. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, thank you for being on. Uh, such an interesting topic. I'm sure this uh, interview is going to be a wild ride. Yeah, it's or a downer for those that are really, really super excited about everything being aliens. <laughs> well, I like. I think most of my listeners have an open mind, so we're. I think we're, everybody we're, on a subject like this, you kind of have to, right? Yeah, absolutely. And on that note, what got you interested in this topic? I think um, I've always loved history and this ancient history. It was always something that um, was near and dear. I was like a lot of kids. Uh, this will date me as wanting to be Indiana Jones, you know, find the golden monkey, get the, find the Ark of the Covenant. And, you know, the idea of finding or archaeological exploration and, and finding the ancient temples of recent history, that was always fascinating to me. And then mm -hmm. I thought, here we are, you know, the, those ancient, ancient things, these giant blocks at Stonehenge, who cares about that? That's, that's not interesting. Um, so I noticed that a lot of your theories has to do with soil. Can you explain your theory to my listeners? Yeah. So um, as I was doing research to write, one of the first things that came up was Colonel Percy Fawcett, who Brad Pitt did a movie about called The Lost City of Z. And Colonel Percy Fawcett was a contemporary around the time that Machu Picchu was found, looking at different um, South American ancient civilizations. And while, while researching mysterious locations and ancient peoples like the Paracas, and that'll tie into our genetics later, I found that Colonel Percy was lost right near um, some of the areas of the Amazon that are well known in Brazil that they had found over a hundred years ago, a soil called Terra Preta. And what's interesting about it is it can be over 20 feet thick in the areas that they've located just in Brazil. They figure it's an area twice the size of Spain or Great Britain. And it's not a matter of it just being soil that was composted from animals or dinosaurs. It's engineered. And so What's interesting about that is it's man-made, it's biochar. And we make modern biochars today, but what got me first interested in this soil was that they kind of glossed over it when they were talking about Colonel Percy Fawcett came through this area and he got lost and we don't know what happened to him. And we found this soil and uh, nobody knows how to make it. It's the richest growing soil on earth. And well, isn't that interesting? Let's go look for Colonel Percy Fawcett. And, as I was doing my research to write, I'm like, this is incredible. Wait, hold on, stop. And how is that not interesting? Well, it's not a temple. It's not a golden monkey. It's not Indiana Jones. It's not a flashy temple that you can bust through a door and find a mummy. It's soil. That's like put people to sleep stuff. And it's not just in Brazil. It's in America. It's in the specific soil compounds and components that they found in 
Brazil is found in Africa, it's found in Australia, it's found all over uh, Europe and Siberia, and they have another name called Chernozems. And again, all discovered about 100 years ago. And the thing is, if you have engineered soil that some of it has been dated to 5000 BC, 6000 BC, but there's a lot of issues with carbon dating, and they haven't tested all of it. And so if you have engineered soil all over the planet in areas that were based on modern recent history, current populations were nomadic in, in our known ancient times that no one lived in this area to engineer this soil. So at a minimum, we're talking about a known soil that's been classified by mainstream science that's been found all over the earth in areas that are not occupied by uh, people. And currently, they're not, um, there's no historical evidence within these areas that they found these engineered soils of a developed society. And that in itself is strange. Indeed, it is. Um, how do you propose that that soil got there? Well, because we know it's, it's been analyzed and we know it's uh, engineered biochar, which is uh, in, in modern farming, if you were going to grow citrus, if you're going to grow apples, for instance, you would have a certain kind of biochar and one of the, it'd be like mixing or brewing beer. You, you could use like different kinds of yeast or barley and same thing with biochar. If you have different elements that you burn up and include in the soot into the, into the dirt, it helps create different nutrients. So the only way to engineer this uh, to have the components that are making up this soil is to have created a recipe and said, this, this recipe is for this item or that item. And so to have it where we have it all over the earth and, and this is where the layers come in. The, the concept that if there was once a highly advanced human society that already figured out uh, technology that we think of as very advanced, like our, iPads and Androids and our laptops. And if you currently have a engineered soil mixed with ruins of polygonal construction all over the earth, the only way it could have happened is from a ancient population that was using these locations. Hmm. Um, how old do you think a civilization would have to be to make this soil? I think that's an interesting question. That's, it, it, it comes down to uh, who was using it originally and then how was the knowledge lost over time and used by uh, cultures that came in and, re and uh, uh, like dynastic Egyptians or the Greeks or the Mayans or the Olmecs, societies that likely came into areas that had a pre-existing population, uh, at least a population center that was destroyed. And so everyone, there's, I guess there's approximately, I, I have not read them all, but there's approximately over 1,000 papers now that confirm the Younger Dryas, which is, you know, what we're coining now, the disaster of about 12,600 years ago, the cataclysm, the, the biblical flood, which is now being nailed down to this younger driest effect of 12,600 years ago that 
these, uh, this flood and world disaster was real. And so we have to look at th that pre flood time and post flood time. And I think the, sh the shortest, longest answer is at least 50,000 years. And I say that because there's a city off the coast of Cuba and there was speculation. It's 1700. Well, it's 2300 feet deep. It's 1700 meters approximately. It's a pyramid like structured city that was found accidentally for 15 years ago now. And they were originally looking for Spanish galleons and gold and they found this anomaly. And when it was photographed and it's an easy find on the internet, but this city was one of my reference points because you have things like the Bimini road, which is also in the Caribbean. And it appears to be large megalithic blocks that form a road that clearly were above water at some point. And so what, what we have is the city and the earliest it could have been out of the water, plate tectonics and shifting aside, is approximately 50,000 years ago. And this is a society that is building with polygonal construction, which is large uh, multi-sided blocks for those um, wondering that actually can control earthquakes that have the ability with no mortar, they're connected together either 100 or 800 tons, uh, 50 tons and they're small, they're big, they're sometimes they have 15 or 20 sides and they fit together. And the most common thing said is that you can't put a blade of grass or a, a knife or a pin or a piece of paper between them that the joinery, the joints on these blocks, they fit together the entire length and width of the blocks, not just on the face. And the society that built that has common ruins on every continent and on the shorelines that we currently credit when we it's hard for us to grasp that we look at the map and we go okay well this is the map within a couple hundred feet of you know modern times of the last couple thousand years that we credit or uh, to the egyptians the sumerians we, we look at the world map and we go this is the world map but even eight thousand years ago doggerland uh, it's the whole area from Great Britain to Scotland all the way to France was continental. It was not underwater. So you have an entire area that had rivers and valleys and mountains that were not underwater. The strait between England and France was fully above water. And right now we write our history and rewrite that story from what's on land now. And although people like Graham Hancock, you know, he did that big dive off the coast of India back in the 90s that they documented and did a great show on for about an hour. And the amount of sitting like New Zealandia, New Zealand has a significant portion of New Zealand that's not above water. So the first thing we do when we look at this and say, when did the society live? How extensive were they and where were they? Well, we have, we have polygonal, cymatic polygonal construction on every continent. We have uh, keystone cuts, which people like David Childress and Ancient Aliens and many others have pointed out. It's a very similar construction technique where in between these large megalithic blocks, you have connections of metal. And we're always talking about 
when I say blocks, we're talking quartzites, basalts, heavy, dense granites that are all incredibly difficult to cut. So you have them all sitting in areas where this engineered soil is also located, but also we have dolmens and things like Stonehenge and Karnak in, in France where we say, well, there's these standing stones. Well, the only thing left of a large megalithic block sometimes may have been a single stone. And maybe that's a slight digression, but the, the, the question is how do we see them all relating together? And how we see them all relating together is the engineered soil and the polygonal cymatic construction seem to be on every continent. And how long have they been at it? Well, part of that is uh, you find a city that appears to be megalithic and 2,000 feet deep. And then you have uh, above ground, you have similar constructions, not just in the pyramids, but you have Robert Schock and John Anthony West identifying the Sphinx being, you know, I know everyone's settling around 12,000 years with this Gobekli Tepe in Turkey. But again, that's recent discovery. If you count the last 44 years, it's been researched. And so what do we have now? We have um, ancient people building structures like the Sphinx that are at least 34,000 to 50,000 years old. You have a city off of Cuba that's at least 50,000 years old. And it's not just the age or that we have been here for a while, but researchers like Michael Cremo, who wrote Forbidden Archaeology, identified paleoanthropological evidence from the historical record in the last hundred something years that we've been looking into this pre and post Darwin, we have found anatomically correct humans all over the earth and in, in layers of rock that were not because somebody buried them, but 5 million, 10 million, 20 million, 30 million years old. And then you have to answer the question. All I'm going to do is unfortunately tell you that there's more questions than there are answers. Am I being helpful? <laughs> Oh, absolutely. So, um, what is the time span difference between like what current science says human civilization has existed compared to what it is in your theory? Well, I think yeah, that's a great one too. Because About thirty thousand years. I, I think it, it it it's as early as well. The mistakes are as early as the Pythagorean theorem. Um, you know, we credit. Uh, Pythagoras with a series of formulas and the Babylonian Plimpton tablet there we're talking a thousand years before Pythagoras um, there are a couple mind you there are millions of cuneiform tablets from Sumeria from Sumer and they are not they are not translated at all so what we have is the ones that we have include the Plimpton 322 tablet, which describes right angles. And it's really an, it's based on trigonometry. It's, it has, it's based on ratios, not angles and circles. It's what, what's crazy about this thing is that it appears to be, it's, it's an incredible tablet because it appears to be a teaching aid. So we're talking about a standard form of math and instruction that maybe a, and this is a mainstream theory on the Plimpton tablet is that this is, and this is in my book and it's uh, the foundations are there's too many portions of science that keep pointing to a much more intelligent 
uh, already researched and already figured out society. So if you have something like the Plimpton tablet that's already doing, and as far as they're showing, it's like the oldest trigonometry table found. And it's completely accurate. And it's also called, I mean, if you're looking for it, you can read about it. It's called the Pythagorean triples. And again, this is something that was credited to a guy that didn't come up with it till a thousand years after this tablet, but it's not the only one. There's also another one that I bring up and it's only because it's, we're talking about a tablet that's describing um, spherical geometry. It's YBC as in BC, uh, although that's not PC anymore, but YBC 7289. It's another cuneiform tablet and it's a sex, uh, it's a base 60 mass system that's using spherical geometry. And if you're a society that wants very accurate measurements, when, for instance, in construction, because I've, I've been in construction over 20 years, I've done design build, I've done historical remodeling for over 20 years. And so when you look at a construction and you want to build it, and you're dealing with cymatic polygonal construction, where the waves and frequencies of the earth, whether it's an earthquake, or an energy or something you want to communicate or cancel within a structure's uh, anatomy, like the foundation, what you have to do is have very accurate math. And you don't need that accurate math to build mud brick ziggurats in Sumer. But you do need it if you have a map also that has, for instance, like the P. Reese Reese map, which which General Reese is kind of like, he's kind of like a George Washington for the Turks. Everybody knows Admiral Reese. And he has a map that has become famous because it shows the outline of Antarctica with no ice on it. And it's over a kilometer deep and it took seismic testing. It took the United States Navy and Air Force. It took a lot of work to figure out what the coastline of Antarctica looked like. And here's a map in 1516 that shows the entire outline of Antarctica. And I know a lot of discussions have been made about it, but this, this kind of ties to like if we're playing a game of Clue and if we're going to piece everything together. If you have engineered soil on every portion of the planet, if you have cymatic polygonal construction that's on every piece of the planet, and you have this, uh, like you said, when did we start? Like how long ago? Well, if we have base 60 math and the trigonometry in Sumer, and they're, mind you, they're also using pi, which they were not supposed to be doing, and the Great Pyramid, same, same deal. You have similar construction in all these areas with a very, very old Sphinx. What is the digression between this highly advanced society and current society? And I think one of the answers to that is to look to the Greeks and the Egyptians and say, okay, well, how long have you Greeks and, and or Egyptians been doing what you do? And Herodotus had gone to Egypt and had gotten a story from the Egyptians about how old the Greeks were. And Eric von Danigan writes about this in some of his books in the last couple of years about um, Greek mythologies being very suspect. And as far as, uh, again, the temples there are also consisting of polygonal construction. The lowest layers of construction at these ancient societies show the most advanced stonework and not just simple stonework, not with anything that copper tools can use, but when asked even back dynastically, the Egyptians said, well, we have a king's list that goes back 36,000 years. And in Sumer, the Sumerian king's list, which is often talked about, 
and I, and I talk about it in the book is again, they have a, they actually say this King's list has been found all over Sumer. It's identical to each other, almost, almost identically listing the Kings of Sumer. And it includes a pre-flood Kings list and a post-flood Kings list. And they actually say pre-antediluvian, post-antediluvian and pre, there were eight Kings that ruled for 214,000 years or 265,000, depending on the Kings list. And, at that same time, you have early stories of the Bible of people like Jared, for instance. My, my name, I was named after Jared, and he's the second, second oldest uh, referenced human in the Bible other than Methuselah. And so, again, I found it fascinating that you have uh, post-flood mythologies discussing people living for thousands of years. You have math that's adding up to highly advanced structured math that you don't need to do mud brick work with, but you do if you're measuring and accounting for frequencies of earthquakes. And boy, is it just kind of a legend that you live for thousands of years or that they didn't know how to count? The frequent thing is, oh, well, they were counting moons or they were just they just didn't know what they were talking about. Well, really? Well, they, they understood base 60 math and how to do spherical geometry. I think they know how long a year is. But if you now take these different elements, like a game of Clue, where we now have uh, genetic information, uh, here's a story of genetic information saying, well, people live for thousands of years. And then we have, in recent times, to get specifically back on your question, and by recent times, you have the Egyptians saying, well, we dynastically, we have a king's list that shows we've been here for 36,000 years. And they're showing it to ancient Greeks that are then writing down and talking about it. And then yeah, the Sumerian king's list is saying they go back 265,000 pre-flood. And then if you add in the younger Darius, so that's another 12,600 years. So where do we get the people and the technology that is showing that isn't from uh, like right now? There are a hundred and the estimation is there's 150 tribes that live around the world that live in loincloths. They have no shoes. They do not go to the doctor. They do not have a health check. They live uh, around the planet quite happily in harmony to whatever degree they do. And we don't interact with them. They don't have cell phones. They're just living as they did thousands for thousands of years. And why would that be any different? to say that uh, 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 years ago, well, all humans were in loincloths and all humans were hunting. Well, isn't it more of an accurate statement based on the constructions we're finding that like when the Aztecs are saying to the Spanish, when they say, who, who built this? And the Aztecs again say, it's the gods. The gods were here first. The gods built this. And you have the same constructions in Jerusalem. Uh, if you're talking about the Temple of Solomon, uh, the University of Eau Claire, Wisconsin, looked at that construction also. You have large megalithic blocks that are 800, 900, and 1,000 tons that were found only in recent excavations that are at the very, very base of what's being called, you know, the temple, you know, King Herod, King Herod uh, had built. But the reality is the base of these constructions are showing large polygonal cymatic constructions and so the commonality, I think, that is here for you and I and everyone and listeners to explore is 
Well, let's let's why don't we give the dynastic Egyptians a little more credit? They know their history. So if they're saying their history is thirty six thousand years and they're they've adapted very incredible uh, dynastically impossible constructions to their use where they've come in maybe out of the deserts or out of what would have been jungle at the time and large forests and maybe they adapted what was a totally decimated cataclysmically ruined civilization and that part's interesting that they then mimic the writings they see they mimic the statues and the clothing and they develop which is a legitimate society over the last you know the five or eight thousand years that we give them credit for for dynastic and pre-dynastic and the timeline we give them which is way more current prior to the younger dryas but then how does that relate to a highly advanced society that could not only engineer soil for growing uh, this engineered soil has uh, electric properties. It can transmit electrical current. It can filter heavy metals. It can filter uh, fertilizer. You can certainly do more than just grow things in this engineered soil with these polygonal constructions. You're talking about maybe communicating with waves and frequencies that were way more advanced. And that brings us to genetic information and what, even if there are these stories, we're doing stories of genetic, uh, okay, well, okay, a king lived 36,000 years in ancient Sumer. Well, how is that possible? Well, the Paracas in Peru, which Brian Forrester released the genetic information. He's a great researcher. He's been on a lot of shows. He has a great channel, written tons of books, uh, such a great uh, researcher and his specific releasing of the genetic testing of the Paracas skulls, which are those elongated skull people that have single suture lines, they are physically, genetically, and their spinal columns are completely built differently than we are. And yet they're human, but they are showing a different construction physically and within their brain. They're not, oh, here we go. I apologize. You're getting your first uh, train beeping by um for all those uh, listening i am uh, yep the bnsf is uh loading their tra- trains and wow this is unexpected but they are transporting uh tanks hmm. wow i've never seen that before but i am watching i've now seen eight tanks go by so far and they are still coming wow so they look all desert storm painted so they are they are transporting, uh, uh, looks like uh, base to base right now. Interesting. Military. Yeah. So not, I've not seen that before. Usually it's just oil and, and general supplies, but I am watching a lot of very large tanks go by, which um, is entirely unexpected. But yeah, so the, get, sorry, getting back on it, the, the point is the highly advanced humans that were here there's a chance that they were fighting. There's a chance that the younger Dryas, but because of the age of the city off of Cuba, because of the age dated by Robert Schock and other, many other geologists of the Sphinx and, or what we're calling the Sphinx, the bedded area of the Sphinx. The, the reality is, is that this is a, 
this is a society that was here at least 50,000 years ago. And because of the math and the maps, like P. Reese Reese's map of Antarctica with no ice on it, and it's an accurate coastline of Antarctica, that these are remnants of a single worldwide advanced population that could control their genetics, like in the Paracas, these elongated skulled people that are found in Peru. Until some mummies were just recently, and I'm talking last few months, found, the Paracas have been credited for years as being the oldest naturally preserved mummies on Earth because Peru, where the Nazca lines are, has almost zero, the areas that these mummies are found has basically less than a half inch of rainfall a year. It's drier than Antarctica or the Arctic Circle. These mummies have been dated to at least 9,000 years old. They show six genetic markers that are not known to humans as we know them. But we have an incomplete fossil record. We have an incomplete genetic and our paleoanthropological evidence of, of humans or anything else is not, um, not documented fully. And so it would be easy enough for a large human advanced population to fall either through their own doing or through natural disaster or both. But then to recover would take time. And just like the tribes that are on this planet, there is a good chance that when we see UFOs, even though these UFOs may be, uh, some are military, that, that is a fact. Um, my publisher, Olaf Phillips, he's written on this. There is definitely a large amount of military uh, experimental craft that are definitely sighted and seen as UFO. But there are many other very incredible incredible and credible sightings by very smart, um, totally intelligent, observing human beings that have seen UFOs. And when we see these ancient things found in the ground, it's always, it's been for many years. Oh, isn't that map neat? Isn't that genetic thing neat? Isn't that construction neat? Well, well, okay. It's the most fascinating thing about engineered soil is that just like the polygonal construction, and just like this genetic info, there's too much highly advanced information that would require satellite technology, that would require at least laser measuring, that we cannot currently even duplicate, nor can we explain genetic markers in ancient mummies that we've only just recently decided to test. And here is a society working with the heaviest stones with, the, with, with any genetic information they want. And today, if they had survived a catastrophe and you're doing zero point turns in an unidentified craft and you still lived on a planet which is largely unexplored, I don't know if we don't, as a society, brag more about the oceans. We don't know anything about the bottom of the oceans. We know more about the sky. And we really don't know that much about the universe. But we know more in general than what's at the bottom of the ocean. So for all these sightings over so many years of so many different UFOs, the assumption has always been, well, this one super interesting, highly technical thing that we found, well, you know, aliens came to the planet because, well, we were just sitting around hunting and wouldn't it be cool if we built 
Uh, something like the Great Pyramid, that is only one sixtieth of a second off of perfect north by north by south by south. Because, well, they weren't busy. And let's bring it from hundreds of miles away, all the stones, and and let's see them scratch their heads because in order to place six million stones, they would have to do one every two minutes for, for 28 years. Yeah, that, that's reasonable. And why do they fit together so well? Why are the constructions so similar around the earth? You, you have to ignore every single thing being found to not say that we already got there, that we already made these advances. And if you are going to do zero point turns in a vehicle, maybe modifying your body isn't a matter of you going to the plastic surgeon anymore. Maybe it's just a matter of you knowing how to program a gene sequence so that you shorten up or that you're more translucent or you hyper-focus the genes uh, there's a neurologist that does a great TED talk about the human skin can see, like even infrared light, that our connections between our brain and our skin are such that we could actually use our skin to see. So when you see a white or gray, large black-eyed alien, are you really looking at an alien or are you looking at a human that is totally capable of interfacing with their machine that they fly or move in and be able to go at zero point turns in anywhere they want? That's the question. So if these humans are, are, are still around, um, do you think they're living in bases underneath the ocean or somewhere on a moon or another planet? Have they already gone out into space and started exploring and just left us behind? Yeah, so let's just, I, oh man, I think, I think that, I know that there's a frequently found section off of Cuba, or not Cuba, sorry, off the coast of California that there's frequent sightings. There's, there's, there's Lake Titicaca and sightings that there are frequent, when we, well, if we just start discussing UFOs, there is a significant amount of sightings in certain areas. We can think of the Bermuda Triangle, uh, the Devil's Triangle. We can think of that area south of Japan. Uh, I'm just bringing up a couple, but we see all these places that have already made it into current history where we've said, Hey, that we, we know that UFOs come from this area, but this isn't a case of, um, well, for sure. Do we have plenty of places underwater that we could be? Absolutely. That we're not exploring. We're not looking at. And at the same time we have things, I bring up a tree, in my book called Hyperion. It's a giant redwood and it wasn't located till 2008. That's a tree in a forest that's 379 feet tall and it's over 60 feet in diameter. Uh, National Geographic did a special on it. Uh, it's also, uh, it's a tree that makes the trees around it. The, the trees around it are over 100 feet tall and they look like tiny little trees. And we somehow missed it. The loggers, our modern society, didn't notice a 379-foot tree on the planet just standing there. And there's nothing around it for miles in this forest. And same thing with the adult, the penguins that we didn't notice in Antarctica. There was a colony of, of penguins that was approximately 1.4 to 1.7 million penguins. And no one noticed it, yet there are people who research penguins and have for well over 100 years and frequent Antarctica for breeding grounds. 
And here's in the danger islands uh, in Antarctica, we just didn't notice those penguins. So there are other examples today where literally the, it's right in our face. How could it, would it be easy to hide? Uh, well, there are so many forests and there are so many locations where we're seeing that they could stay. And then a very interesting point you made. What about if you're a highly advanced society, what about satellite? Why not? Why would they not have already sent out their own exploratory ships? And right now, there are a number of things distracting us in the news. And I believe I just saw another article on ancient origins about the signal that's been coming to Earth that was noticed. It's been 500 days that we've noticed a signal coming from Earth. And of course, we're all excited about finding a out of world, uh, some other universal entity, uh, civilization that we could communicate with or connect to. But the first and foremost, to get a signal in a direction, either it's random or it is from one of these societies, or if a society that had been here 50,000 years ago had launched satellites to explore the universe and had been doing it for maybe even longer, how far away would those satellites be based on what those drives are and what would they be sending back and what would those signals look like? And that's where it gets really fascinating because when we say, did they leave the planet? There's a lot of people out there speculating based on satellite imaging and photographs that are released in NASA. Uh, what, what's on Mars? What, what about the, um, the astronauts landing on the moon and saying it rings like a bell? Why, why would the, you know, what are the, what are the chances the moon's hollow? And these are, we're, you know, in my opinion, if you've already been here on this planet and able to do uh, based on the crafts that we currently see and you just think, well, if I was a highly advanced human that had, you know, look what we've done in a hundred years of uh, aviation technology. What would we do in a hundred thousand years? What would we have available based on the Bhagavad Gita, uh, the Hindu scripts, which reference, you know, which, everyone loves to reference for the description of what appears to be a spacecraft or at least aerial flights combat. And so we're talking about a book that references history back. If we're to believe the Bible, uh, the oldest holy scripts on earth are the Hindu scripts. And they're talking about millions of years of history, which also coincides with the anatomically correct humans that have been found in the red crag that have been found everywhere that Michael Cremo uh, revisits the original paleoanthropological evidence for in forbidden archeology. span And that was 10 years of work about work that was done for a hundred years. So here's an advanced society flying, leaving the planet. Did they already colonize Mars? Did something already go wrong? You almost have to look at the, the planet itself now. I've thought a long time about, did we nuke ourselves? Did they, did they already do it? I mean, you look at the deserts in California and Nevada, and you look at the deserts in Mongolia and northern, even the most current research is saying that North Africa was uh, geographically, all of North Africa, where the Sphinx was, was definitely... Uh, vegetative until it, they're now saying as early as 5,000 years ago. 
for sure it was earlier than that. And again, I, the, the coastline thing is super important. You look at Dodgerland and you look at the coastline and what Dodgerland is a well-known documented section of land. And by section, I mean really continental. It was the continent of Europe looked dramatically different. You could just hop on a horse from Paris and you could travel out as far as you wanted through Scotland and Ireland. And there was no boats. There was no nothing. It was just one giant continental area and it wasn't the only location so the majority of what we're telling ourselves is our history based on the coastlines we have now is really difficult to say well why would this society why don't we see them why don't we understand why are they always out in the ocean why are we always seeing ships why why is there sightings whether it's u.s military or people talking about well hey off the coast of california there's this area it's a hot spot or this other area and this ancient society, if you're talking about ancient coastlines, and I spent a long time with an illustrator and cartographer to come up with all the separate maps. It's a hard thing. If you want one of the conspiracies on the resistance to, if you want to call it the resistance to truth, it's really hard to go online and not through an academic source to find chronologically a map of the world holistically to look at not you can go find the Doggerland map because that's where Merlin and the Knights and and England and and Rome and and you know there's so many interesting things and Vikings so that's a really well published map but when you try to find New Zealandia when you start looking at other you can get these snapshots like just Asia just just Europe just maybe a little bit around Brazil and South America, but it's really hard to find a map that shows you, well, Jared, you're talking about the world looking like a different place. Well, the map of the world, if you start with one 50,000 years ago, it's a different animal. And it would be easy if some of these ancient societies in existence pre Younger Dryas or, you know, pre Great Flood lived uh, possibly hundreds of miles now in the sea. And for them to have secured underwater living or have gone off world would not be a problem. How about time travel? That's that one. Um, you know, it's outside of, I, you know, I, I like to keep up with the, the, the dark matter or the, you know, the qu quantum, you know, spintronics and what we're doing with uh, the, the Bose, you know, the, the big collider in uh, France and what are we, what are we finding about the universe? Like the recent discovery about black holes and dark matter and what are the different states we currently, I think are outside of, um, I, I guess I'm not uh, theoretically it's possible, but I'm not seeing as far as technology or anything mm -hmm. that we found, I'm not seeing anything that says that that was something that was achieved. Um, but I do worry about from a nanotechnology standpoint, from a very small technology standpoint, I do wonder if the society just overreached on some nano level that may have crossed to what we would maybe call another dimension or to another, um, 
another, uh, I don't know, I, I, I guess I'm not going to say universe, but there's a chance that when you start working with subatomic particles that mm-hmm. you are ultimately messing with chemistry that may backfire or so you think it might be impossible that they were maybe experimenting with uh, different levels of quantum physics and maybe we launched themselves into a different dimension i think that some of them may have been capable of some of them based on the technology that we're finding all over the earth and i i know i haven't talked giant stone spheres yet because some papers just came out on it but i think that they could have they didn't all do it and I like to use the practice for a different example because um, these are the elongated skulled people again, and they have very weird features to their bodies. Their neck doesn't go in where it should. Uh, Ours goes in the middle of our skull. Theirs goes in the back. Their veins that go into their brain are in different locations than ours. They have six genetic markers that are not known to other humans. And at the same time, we could digress into a conversation about all sorts of weird genetic anomalies. But my point about the Paracas in reference to, did they blow themselves up? Did some of these ancient people end up in another dimension or did they time travel? I think one of the issues is take the Paracas in that everything about them physically and genetically uh, is really interesting in that, elongated skulled people are found all over the earth. And we're not talking about people pressing boards on babies' heads to make them long. They, these people were born this way, and it's literally a taboo subject. And although Brian Forrester's work is really putting a light on it that's really kind of unavoidable, and it should be on the cover of Smithsonian still right now, what's interesting to me about them is that, let's just say they finally, let's say it's 46,000 years ago, and there's another catastrophe Uh, half of them blow themselves up at some point the Paracas who genetically are from Eurasia they're from the Crimea region of Russia essentially and at some point these elongated skulled people who lived in Eurasia decided to move to the coast of Peru what were the Paracas known for textiles fishing they were like it was almost like they were the first mennonites or quakers or amish they left wherever they were in europe around a lot of unexplained large megalithic constructions for some reason they said forget it everything sucks maybe maybe they said that and they were like look we just want to go live peacefully on a beach and we're going to fish and we're going to live out our lives and that's it. That's what we're doing. And so they moved, they left because you have a lot of questions to answer for when you have genetic markers that aren't known to humans, that you're born with elongated skulls and we have all these genetic, we didn't even know there was a double helix Mm -hmm. until 26 years ago. Now we know there's a quad helix. I want to ask you, this was a, sort of an off-the-wall question. I didn't have it on the list, but I just thought of it as we were talking. Um, octopus or octopi. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're, they're very intelligent, uh-huh. and they have the ability to change their own DNA. Uh-huh. What is the chances of them being a part of this ancient civilization of humans? 
Yeah, I think that goes right there with chickens. Everyone's like chicken before the egg or egg before the chicken. How does that work? And if I was a super advanced human that was still living on this planet, wondering whether or not I should help these people move along past their cell phones, they can't even figure out that it, you can't have a chicken. Well, if you, if you start with an egg, how do you get a creature designed like that? You design the creature. If you have, this is the overwhelming uh, thought. If you have a society that can control earthquakes, that can build and not just protect a single, uh, by the way, not just protect a single building, but protect a whole metropolis. The engineered soil all over the planet indicates, along with LIDAR scans in Guatemala, a much larger human population than we know of now. Much, much larger. And so you would engineer not just soil and trees, which there's some weird things about that, but the trees, you know, like the secret life of trees, um, there's that whole book about how they communicate and how they connect through a fungal network. But if you were to engineer animals of every kind that you don't just randomly come up with a creature that lays an egg, there's no transitional, there's no biological evidence of anything that was once not laying an egg. You know, it, 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 it has to be programmed. So you got different animals and creatures in a giant functioning biosphere computer including like the nazca lines and i'm not talking the spiders and the monkeys drawn in i'm talking about the long 25 kilometer long lines that are all dipped entirely in arsenic that have again electric properties connected to earth circuits connected through trees connected through polygonal cymatic constructions with pineal glands in the human brain that actually maybe like in the Bible, when they discuss that we talked with animals that we were programmed that way. If evolution says that you don't get anything except through a forced adaptation, well then are, are we the only creature that got up? Oh, there goes your next train. This one's normal, but you get, do you only get forced adaptation then therefore everyone keeps saying in general, the theory is that we're only 10 to 14% conscious. So when did we get the other 84% of our brain, unless we once connected and used all of it. And that's where you get an octopus and you get a chicken and an egg and a lot of creatures that used to, there's not a, you know, these all, all these creatures used to connect and work together. And I don't think it was just a rant. It's not just, it's not like we lost the manual to the planet and said, well, you know, the planet should really look like it did 2.6 billion years ago with 36,000 T-Rexes, 24,000 cattle. And you know what I mean? It's not like we're supposed to, it's like, well, okay, is it, it how engineered was it? And I think it got to a place where they were messing with themselves genetically. It's in our genetic code, our own genetic code. It's in creatures like an octopus, which, uh, gosh, was it, wasn't that a recent book about how alien octopuses are? Yes, they make it was. no sense. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, but that, that therein lies the issue is that not, there, there are people who, the, here we are in the last few thousand years and we put a lot of meaning into traditions and things that we've done the last couple thousand years to suggest that just like the Paracas and just like an octopus and just like 
anything that lays eggs that there, that the hand of man engineered this is a very difficult thing on a lot of, even if you weren't a conspiracy person or uh, it has nothing to do with conspiracies. It just has to, from a scientific standpoint, looking at the information available in our historical record, we are really looking through a pinhole at what we know of genetically and of what we know of. But there are other things like synesthesia that, you know, where you cross your, all your senses, where you can sense what someone else feels by just watching them. You can feel what they feel. You can uh, smell something and see a color, or you could see a color and maybe see a number or see numbers and they might appear to you as there's a lot of different ways synesthesia crosses your your mind and it was studied by the Greeks it was studied uh, by Carl Jung it, it's been stu studied uh, extensively by psychologists and psychiatrists in the last hundred years but synesthesia is a great uh, example of what is considered I don't think they call it so much a disability or as an ability uh, or definitely enabled the, the reality of synesthesia is that they think that at least 20% of the human population is a synthelite. And the interesting thing, again, about this is it shows another way in which we don't understand the human body. And we do have these abilities that either look, again, they would look random. If you just blind eye it and look at the one ability, it makes no sense. Uh -huh. But if you needed to connect with animals, if you needed to connect directly with other humans, we apparently have the brain power, uh, whether it's sonar, to seeing through our skin, to. Sure. You still oh, there? Oh yeah. no! I, um, yeah, like one of the things that makes me think of is um, um, sort of like correspondences, you know, between color, numbers, uh, sound, and stuff like that. Um, one of the other things I wanted to ask you, along the lines of still the uh, idea of different species, um, the shape-shifting reptilian theory. Yeah, it like that. It it goes back to um, what have we experienced? There's two parts to it. One is, hey, um, we see ancient records of people seeing reptilians we see an ancient record of whether it's Japan and the statues of reptilian like creatures or, and, and it's all stuff from like, you know, it's a couple hundred years ago. It's 400 years ago, 700 years ago. It's a thousand years ago. And then you have, well, well, let's not forget about the Egyptians and crocodile, you know, half man, half, you know, excuse me, Greek or Hindu. Um, we frequently forget the East and we have these half-human, half-animal gods or demigods or characters. And when you have a reptilian, the, the, the reptilian dialogue and or what's around it, I think is the same thing that it's, it's, the, it's what we've, okay, and again, it dates me. It's what we grew up with. We were told 50,000 years ago, everybody was in a loincloth. This is the history of the world. We were in loincloth. Everybody was doing the same thing. Nobody was advanced. Everything was simple. 
And then eventually there was Sumer and some stuff happened, you know, cause we're Westerners. Oh, you know, something happened in the East, but you know, everything important happened in, uh, Everything happened, you know, of course, with the Greeks first. And more importantly, the Fertile Crescent, which is where we have this out-of-Africa theory, and then we have the Garden of Eden, and those two theories marry very nicely. And then, well, of course, then we had Rome, then we had the Middle Ages, and we had a Renaissance, and then we got really smart, and now we all have iPhones, and we've been to the moon, and here we are, and this is our lineal time path. So when we look back at our history, and we go back to Sumer, we go back to the Egyptians, in the Western hemisphere. And we say, well, what are the stories, myths, and legends? And we also see, oh, well, we're a little more interested now in Asia. And so what does that look like with these reptilians? And what does it look like about these uh, dwarves? So these uh, like elf castles, like uh, the new earth lady, um, you know, Sylvia Ivanova, her, her work on the elf castles and were there tiny people running around everywhere or were there giants? And, it all ties, it's one, I think, a common uh, projection of the survivors of the Younger Dryas, of the, of the post-flood of the last time we got major kicked on a planetary scale was approximately this 12,600-year-ago catastrophe. And it, it, it kind of shoved the last of any roaming table uh just topical earthlings into complete disarray and what we recognize as organized society like sumer and or the sumerians and then of course uh the hairpin the indian cultures that we're only recently excavating uh, at least from a western it's in our western consciousness that there was a highly organized society in india and that this out of Africa theory finally has, remember it's a theory indoctrinated theories are not facts, but they've been treated like facts forever. So now we see these post flood myths of, well, there's reptilians and there's a hollow earth and there are people living in this, uh, these different maybe hollowed sections and, or they interact with humans and there's, mm -hmm all these post-flood legends and myths. And, and the, the problem then is, are we, are, are, did someone at some point actually see a reptilian? The first accreditation with the statement to me is, well, that's a race of creatures that came here or the stories go that there are reptilians and they're the, they're, they're, they've been here a long, long time and the crocodile people in ancient Egypt, all these people, they're, they're reptilians and they're real. And well, but uh, if, again, if we look at all the technology around the planet of how advanced we got and we, and we have only scratched the surface on all the things that are found right down to nano layered metals, but is it possible for the human race to modify and tweak genes oh yeah and have we had our clones we've we, you know we've started at sheep well we started before sheep but we have we cloned things and have we modified the human genome and do we know that different kinds of humans like the practice exist absolutely do we have a complete human record no have we been around here for millions of years that's a, a longer and harder conversation but it's true so what do we do with these reptilians what do we do with every other race that you want to say in the last 
the dialogue, I guess, in the last 20 years or 30 years, uh, you know, since we've been looking at UFOs, what, what do we say about these other races and what do we say about their uh, presence on the planet? Well, the assumption is that they're races and the assumptions is that th there's been more than one that's been seen. And if there are, why is it the first jump to conclude that they are foreign to us? Why isn't the first jump based on the technology and everything that we're finding, why aren't we, why aren't we seeing and understanding that there's a good possibility that this ancient human society survived and for some various reason, they had different body mods that they chose to develop. And right. I don't mean over a period of time, just maybe they just mm -hmm. needed to be a reptilian. Right, that brings me to my next question. Um, so let's say that there's, um, humans have evolved sort of like all over the place. We've got like reptilian humans. We have humans living under the ocean. We have humans that have gone out into space. We possibly have humans that have jumped into another dimension. Do you think any of these humans still interact with current humans in our current existing governments, as such as like an Illuminati type of conspiracy theory? Yeah, I've, that's a great question because I, I've gone back and forth in my own mind. Did they, did they try to help us from time to time? And, or are they negatively helping us? Or are they, they, they maybe started with something with some goodwill? Or was it just out of necessity? If, for instance, there was a worldwide global culture and they fell and they had to go underground. There's lots of rock-cut ruins. That's a subject of my next book is rock-cut ruins and more of the technology and looking at this. Um, but what if they came out of hiding? And this is something where I've been, uh, I've thought more on, which is, well, you come back to the surface over a period of generations and the dynastic Egyptians again, and I say this because there are many temples that have been built. Uh, David Hatcher Childress was the first person that I ever saw as a researcher point this out is that those keystone cuts, uh, which are laid into megalithic blocks were sideways in some of the temples. And Brian Forster started going to Egypt a lot, and I started seeing more of John Anthony West's work and looking at the at the buildings where, in close-up view, they're reusing megalithic structures, and they're but the but the keystone cuts are on their sides, and they're completely different rows apart. They've just re, they've adapted and reused what they found. And if you're a highly advanced culture, you come out of the ground, and you're like, well, oops, we left some of our workers on the surface and think of it like a cruise ship you know uh, some mm -hmm. people were passengers one guy was an engineer but he wasn't he didn't know how to make a foundry but now they're back on the planet and there's dynastic egyptians and greeks and harapin and people all over the world just like adapting and 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 olmecs and and mayans and they're just they're just reusing the stuff that and there's only now what hundreds of them 50 of them a thousand of them a few thousand of them what do they do uh, do they do they start recollecting their technology and how do they interact with what appears to be, uh, again, by example, we keep finding ziggurats. We found Sumer. We found that there was a giant society that built up, and, but, but they somehow knew spherical geometry and they somehow knew trigonometry and they somehow knew pi. Well, well how, wh who helped them adapt that? And so, or in South America, the reason the conquistadors came Veracocha. Veracocha was a god, but he was red-bearded, red-headed. A ginger came to South America. I mean, you can't make this up. 
a red-bearded, red-haired dude named Veracucha taught the South Americans how to farm and how to basically read and like basically form civilization. Now, was that helping like today or even back then, was it a necessity because, hey, there's a few thousand of us left. We have highly advanced weapons and technology. We could really pull kind of a Lord of the Rings, uh, uh, you know, kind of a last battle thing on all these people. But why don't we get these uh, totally wrecked humans to settle down a little bit? So just like the Peace Corps, they send out a few guys and like, let's teach this area how to farm. Let's teach this area how to read and farm. So when and, you talk about necessity – um, one of the things um, that comes to my mind is could you simply be using us as slaves? Yeah, so that the question is, are they trying to keep us out of their yeah, that and are they trying to keep us out of our hair, out of their hair? Like, are we just getting advanced enough again to be annoying? Because again, too many normal people, too many times and I'm sure you've interviewed and talked to a lot of people with, there are too many people who have had real world UFO experiences or they've been abducted, or uh, you have cow mutilations. These are real deal. These are real things. And again, some things you can chalk up to secret military uh, experiments, but there are too many that indicate direct contact with what appears to be alien. And then what do you do with them now with modern governments? Do they care? If for a thousand years it's the Catholic Church finding and discovering ancient high technology are they just destroying it or are they keeping it at the vatican uh then you have worldwide governments in the nuclear age once they developed as far as we did by world war ii and what we're finding through satellite imaging i mean nasa lidar scanned the planet over 30 years ago so where's all that imaging? You have Sarah Parkak of the Global Exploration. She won the TED Prize a few years ago. I write about her. She found so many ruins in Egypt that no one had ever seen because she used satellite technology that she helped develop for archaeology just a few years ago. And she won the TED Talk Prize, but we don't hear about her much. At the same time, if NASA had this technology 30 years ago, didn't they already find all this? Because they were probably looking for military bunkers or stuff like that. But did they witness, have the governments, Russia, America, China, Japan, Germany, the, the, you know, the England, the, the larger governments, did they already end up interacting with these highly advanced humans? And, or do they not care if they interact with us intentionally or not, like Roswell or this crash that I don't know if you heard about that UFO crash in Brazil just a few weeks ago? Right, yes, I've heard. Yeah, and, and so the reality is, was it related to what appears to have possibly, I mean, the, the word through the grapevine is, was there a battle at Roswell or not? And did that crash end up being a result of what happened at Roswell uh, a few weeks ago? Or was it independent? And again, was it intentional interaction of giving over a technology or helping guide us in a positive way? Is there like a radical, super advanced human teenager who rebels and says, we need to help them, we should be more hippie and uh, offer them something? But then historically, like the battle over Nuremberg in the 1500s, there's a lithograph of, like you said, if there are aliens in the water, and there's reptilians underground. What if these are just different advanced human factions that built themselves back, but instead of 
they didn't have enough people to reoccupy the planet in whole. So what if, based on their faction, the Paracas decide, screw it, we're giving up, we're going to go fish, and we're going to go do textiles. But then what about the groups that decided to not get along? So you have the Bhagavad Gita, you have them discussing the battles of the gods, but the Nuremberg battle, which I love because it's a lithograph, you can look it up, of these stars and bright lights. People didn't understand what they were looking at, but hundreds of people, at least 900 people in the 1500s watched a aerial combat battle of some kind over Nuremberg, which was then memorialized in a lithograph. So does it show that these people may not get along with each other and have various and possibly nefarious reasons to interact with our people now, our government, and also continue to experiment with us? Because they don't see us as like, look, they're only 10 to 15% conscious. They're barely human. I mean, they might not look at us as very high functioning. Yeah, they could treat us like, like we treat animals, like a cat yeah. or a doll, basically. We're, yeah. just, we're just pets. Yeah. They're, that like, we're sorry that you guys didn't die in the cataclysm and you're here and, and we're basically nice to you, but this one needs to get tagged. This one needs a vaccine. Again, you have genetic, direct genetic manipulation even in vaccines and it's not clear if they really care or if there's ongoing debates amongst the groups because this is home and if you've been here for millions of years and you're already out traveling there there lies part of the issue did they did did some of them leave the planet and never return or did their satellites again they're sending signals back and are they still getting them and or using them as relay devices and communicating in other locations? To your point about slavery, we have, again, we have a post-flood mythology of the Anunnaki in Sumeria. And this ties into, again, pre-Younger Dryas, massively advanced society, nanotechnology. It would not look like, you know, a flash drive doesn't look like anything. It looks like a piece of melted plastic if you didn't know what it was. Um, is it possible that there are some slivers of truths in the Sumerian uh, legends of Nibiru? Yeah, yes, there's astrological evidence that there is another planet, planet nine slash Nibiru. Yeah, it, it, so it, that's possible. But did the Anunnaki come as an alien species to the planet, develop human slaves and need gold? Now, the only way I see that even possible is if they did not have uh, nanotechnology to, if they came here in disrepair and needed uh, parts and things to repair what would ultimately, if you're an interdimensional space traveling alien, you do not need, you can build anything you want out of any atom you want. Mm. You don't need gold. You can make gold literally out of thin air. You put atoms together. You build whatever you want in an atom 3D printer. It, it, we're, we're on the verge of this technology. We're building hearts. We're repairing skin. We're growing things in 3D printers that, you know, before it was making a skin for, an, like making a new ear or a nose, and now we're making hearts and livers. And we're doing it with genetic juice in a 3D printer 
it's not going to be that much further away to say, well, do you want a gold necklace or a silver one? I want yeah. the one that looks cool. You know? Well, well one of the things, what makes me ask this question is, you know, and I, and I ask myself this question all the time is as humans, we spend our entire lives working for a worthless piece of paper. And it doesn't make any sense. So it's like, like, it's almost like by genetic design that we were made to chase after something that's completely arbitrary. I know it's, it's almost like it's a, I feel like the best way to put us is it's like we're in safe mode. It's like we're, it's like we're basically just like a computer that just basically malfunction and we can still get into the bios. Like there's some basic uh, or genetic memory uh, Harvard, some Harvard scientists. I, I love this one. They've, figured out how to save information on genetic material. And that's, it's super cool because if you can store things basically indefinitely and genetically, then it's DNA and memory basically. So if you can put like right now, well, they put a 50,000 word book and they started, they started in 2012 and this is uh, Siri Kusori and George Church and colleagues. And they, these, these are Harvard genetic scientists, and they, did, they started with a book. But currently, uh, you could the storage capacity of a gram of DNA is at least uh, basically 1.8 tr- uh, terabytes. You know, it's, it's insane. You could store uh, 215 gigabytes, basically, currently in a gram you could put all of the human world history and knowledge in basically two elephants. And when people have these flashbacks, for instance, like I used to be Cleopatra, everybody was always somebody famous. Nobody was the janitor. Nobody did recycling. They were always somebody famous. And however, there are instances of people saying, well, I dreamt that I was a farmer and I, I was in this field and they do some research and it turns out that there's a foundation of a farmhouse. Uh, There are some, and it always gets thrown into the paranormal. It gets thrown into this uh, psychosomatic, like some sort of uh, human consciousness connection. But what if the truth is that we are all each other's backup? And there's a whole other side of this between DNA and memory and storage. And what if in safe mode, even though that we're in that, in that space, there's this reawakening with physical abilities, like with Wim Hof and cold and with synesthesia. It's, a, it's an ability that never went dormant. Plus, we have this hodgepodge of, of what, what we're not identifying as technology. We're thinking of devices and hard things as technology. But I'm talking about the trees and the soil itself, not just the act of making it, but the way it grows and moves, even animals and the way they morph or change or the way we used to connect, all those pieces are here short-circuited. And from a genetic technology standpoint, there is a good chance that instead of thinking back or realizing, well, I used to be Mark Antony or I was, uh, I was a great general in World War II or fill in the blank, whatever it is, always somebody famous what if we are each other's backups on a human consciousness on a quantum level? So when you think time travel, what if time as we experience it and, and it's, what if it's, it is more magnetic related and there isn't a lineal path 
you know, there's all that research uh, that Ken's been doing that, uh, that, that book on magnetism uh, that I think is, uh, I, I think that there's a chance when you were saying about time travel that it more relates to on a quantum level, I think possibly there's a timelessness to our genetic information. And that I, I think that's possible too. It was one of the things that time as a linear perspective is just a delusion, but actually everything may be happening all at once. Just like when we're reading a book, we hold the whole book and the whole story in our hand, but we can only read it one word at a time. God, that's a, I'm going to use that in the future. That's a great analogy to look at it that way. Yes. I agree. Um, so we're starting to run out of time. I have one final question for you, and it's a big one. Uh, what do you think they have if they, you know, if if they're interacting with our society and looking at everything that's currently going on? Like I know a lot of people look at the world right now and are saying, "Man, this is end game." What do you think they have planned for us? Hmm. Is this, is this the beginning of a reboot, maybe? You know, it does appear that we've rediscovered enough uh, abilities, you know, physically and mentally and technologically. We have figured out a number of abilities that, you know, we just weren't there even 50, probably 60 years ago. It would never happen. And so... I, I like to be optimistic that I, I, it's hard for me to think about that we have advanced ancestors based on everything found everywhere on the planet and to think, well, you know, if I'm down or if you're down, I'm going to come over and help you. And I, I can't come up with a good reason other than they don't think they can help us or could or should. And, or there's internal disagreements why they should or shouldn't. And so what does it look like now that we're understanding who we were a little more and that we do know that there is history, like the LIDAR scans are showing us in Guatemala, that there was tens of millions of people in South America, Central America that we didn't realize. And what does it look like now that we're awakening and are expressing these genetic and mental abilities again do they care because they want to care or like you're saying, is it, are they subtly helping like the Illuminati and the governments? Are they actually doing things to kind of set us two steps back? And so that ultimate question of too many people are seeing too many UFOs, seeing too many, there's too much visual confirmation for the average person to deny that, there's something present on our planet and it's more than likely true that it's always been here and have they always interfered or helped us or interacted with us? It appears that way. And why help us now or not? Or I, I, we're not getting a straight answer that no one's landing and walking down the saucer ramp saying, hi, we're here to help. Nobody's doing it. And I don't think, privately that's what's going on i think that there might be uh, and i mean in government levels or in uh church levels or in illuminati or masonic or if you want to put it uh luciferian i mean whatever the 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 post-antediluvian 
groups that exist that have uh, mysticized um, their beliefs, whether or not there is a more advanced human race group interacting with them. And the reasons we don't have, I think, good answers for that, but I think it's happening. And I think it's important that the average person is more aware of it and that there are shows like this and that we're, that I'm writing, that we're, that not just writing, but that we're actually digging into all these sites because the proof of those purposes, I think can be found in what we're digging up and can be found in this shared consciousness that we do seem to be growing in. But I don't know if there's anything significant that's, I don't, I don't think we're mid movie and I don't think we're at the, I don't think we're at the big reveal. Hmm. Interesting. I guess we'll find out soon enough. Yeah. And uh, you know, it's such a huge uh, because of everything in our past and because of how exciting and crazy all these technologies are or what we talk on. I think I know it this is a great introduction to your, uh, listeners about my book and about it's not aliens worse it's us discovering our lost history but i think the topics of each piece how it all fits together like a giant connected castle in legoland i think that the more we unpack everything that's found together it it does reveal itself to be something we can get our brains and we can get behind collectively and at a minimum start working better together as a human race. Absolutely. And um, where can my listeners find your book? Oh, it's on Amazon. Uh, I have a YouTube channel, not aliens. I just post some stuff on there. I'm working on my own content and also have, uh, I do have an audio book coming here, hopefully in the next five weeks, I think is the plan. Mm-hmm. And so other than that, my book is available on Amazon and it can ship right to you. Awesome. It's not aliens worse. It's us discovering our last history. <laughs> Love that title. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if you have any new projects or anything coming up or any links you want me to post to send them over and I'll put them on my Facebook page or include them in the notes of this podcast. Yeah, I, how often are you? Uh, how often are you uh, putting out new content? Uh, twice a week, usually oh, Mondays and Thursdays. Wow, you're busy. I am busy. <laughs> Plus, wow. I work a real job, or sort of a real uh, job. Oh yeah, well, and that—that's also myself. I'm still doing design build, so I'm uh, I'm uh, on occasion capable of cutting or or hammering something. Yes, we all got to make a living somehow. Yeah, well, nothing like releasing a book during a pandemic. No, it's a good time, actually, because people have nothing to do but read. Uh, you know what? And there's the irony. The best-selling book, I believe, on Amazon right now is a 70-something-year-old book about the 1917 Spanish flu. <laughs> That's the bestseller right now. It makes sense. <laughs> Fortunately, the author is not still alive to profit from it. I, I, I know, right? So I, I would like to, um, I would at least like to do, I, I am working on, I went to Africa in January and uh, spent the month there. And I, I, I do have my second book outlined and I, and I am working on it. But like you, it's like, okay, I got to work 
normal job. I have to, I would love to be lecturing and, and talking more on, cause this is such a huge subject and it's a huge paradigm shift for the universe that, you know, it's hard. I mean, Eric Von Danigan put out chariots of the gods barely 43 years ago now, 42 years. Mm-hmm. And, and we've now gone from, well, maybe we were visited to well, you realize everything in the ground we're perfectly capable of doing, but it would just take a much longer history. And it would mean that we weren't cavemen 50,000 years ago. Right. Right. And so here, it, here it is then it's like, okay, well, how do we keep shifting with people like um, I met, I met Wim Hof back uh, when he came to America for the first time and started practicing that. And then being able to not just control your body temperature, but control your uh, inflammatory response. That's a real thing. And mm-hmm. his whole point is that you don't forget that unless you could, you, you forgot it, but we could always do it. It was something that it was our capability. We could, that was a technology. And so with stuff like that, it's just, it's just so all interconnected. Right. And you know, that's why I, I, my own personal opinion on this type of thing is that I, I don't abide by one particular theory or, or school of thought, but I do think there is room and possibility for all these things to actually have some truth in some part of our history and of our future and just an, as an explanation of our reality like why why is this even happening oh yeah and that's the thing is that people want to jump to some people want everyone's wanted the answers and i grew up irish catholic and and then you start asking questions like well this doesn't make sense and this doesn't make sense and this doesn't make sense and then and then you get told to just shut up and have faith and mm-hmm. and i'm like but that's not stopping everyone from murdering everyone and over opinions and how did we get so disconnected is one question, but then we are disconnected. How do we get reconnected? Well, it's not about just agreeing that we were all one cut, one society or one culture. It's not just that elementary. It's, it's realizing that it was an incredibly well-functioning, well-connected and they still screwed it up. So let's not do what they did, but let's also, why don't we like reverse engineer a lot of this because Right, like who wouldn't want to call grandma who just lived through an 8.6 earthquake and find out she didn't even know there was an 8.6? Right, exactly. And, uh, but that's that's one technology, and and as far as the yeah, as far as the book goes, I don't know. It's a it's a lot to get through, and um, uh, you know, I wanted it to be fun, but it's like, how do you explain so much science and technology to people? on so many levels right down to like interconnected trees and planetary objects and, and, uh, and things like the animals. Right. Well, your book that is fantastic. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I want to thank you for being on my show. Oh, thank you. Um, to my listeners, thank you for listening. And please like and review my podcast on whatever platform you are using. It helps this podcast move up in the ranks and easier for people to find. If anybody wants to be a guest or has any comments, you can email me at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, uh, everythingimaginable2020.com. And... 
pretty much any place I can put myself on the internet. <laughs> All right. And um, also, remember, everything that is was first imagined. Uh, come back in a couple days for my next podcast. And oh, yeah, also, um, to my listeners, and to you too, if you like, you can purchase my book. It's called Enlightenment Guaranteed, the only book on Zen you'll ever need. And that is also available on Amazon. You can get a hard copy or you can download the Kindle edition. And uh, thank you for being on my show again. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Awesome. 